We make USAA insurance to help you save. Take advantage of discounts when you cover your home and your ride. Discover how we're helping members save at USAA.com slash bundle. Restrictions apply. Hi, this is Bethany Finger, and you are listening to a Prince Kai Fan Pod bonus episode. Enjoy. Hello, and welcome to episode 151 of the Prince Kai Fan Pod. Today's episode is an interviewed podcast. My name is Bethany Finger. I will be your interview host, and today's special guest is Robin Rowe, author of Dark Room Etiquette, coming out today, October 11th. Hi, Robin. Hi. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming. I would love to hear a little bit about yourself. Okay, so my background is in counseling and psychology. My undergraduate degree is in human development, child psychopathology. My graduate degree is focused more on adolescence and adolescent development. And so I'd always thought that was just going to be, that was going to be my career. But I also always wanted to be a writer. I started writing when I was really little, like maybe seven. And it was just something I always did. I always just sort of wrote just for myself, never shared my work with anyone But in the back of my mind, it was always this dream to be published. And eventually, my son actually just kept really encouraging me to just share my work with somebody. You know, he's like, at least try to find an agent, even though I had a lot of anxiety about sharing my work. He really, really encouraged me. And so eventually, I was like, okay, I'm going to do it. And plus, you know, it was just something I really wanted. And I think, you know, the the, the sort of, I guess, pain of not pursuing it started to outweigh the fear of pursuing it, if that makes sense. Yeah. So I, I finally was like, okay, I'm going to research like, how do you get an agent? And um, I started sending out to agents and I ended up getting five offers like pretty quickly. And um, one of the agents offered to fly out like the next day from New York to Texas. And I was like, okay, this is real, you know? That's incredible. Yeah, it was just such a dream come true kind of experience. And um, I ended up getting a a two book deal for my first book and um, have been writing full time since that. That's such an inspiring story, too, because myself and a lot of listeners are writers. And I know I've been querying for, oh, a year and a half, I think. And Mm -hmm. I know a lot of people query for a really long time and they get... um, sort of defeated. And so they stopped trying. And I I think it's great that you were able to keep going and that you had someone who motivated you. Yeah. And, and too, about the querying, I've also known writers who um, I've read their unpublished work and some of them have these really beautiful, brilliant books. And it just took them a really long time to find the agent, but they just kept doing it until they found Mm -hmm. somebody And I think that's really important because it can, you know, there's a lot of luck to that too. You know, like you get an offer and then that kind of spurs more offers. Um, But then you hear the other stories of, oh, it took, you know, you know, years and then eventually they got it. So I think the only thing that can stop is stop you is if you just stop, you know, Mm -hmm. If, if you quit pursuing it, it won't happen. But if you just keep at it, I really believe it'll happen. So let's talk about what type of writer are you? Are you a pantser? Are you a plotter? Are you somewhere in the middle? Um, I, I would say somewhere in the middle, probably. I 
so for me, like once I get, you know, I'll have ideas all the time, like little ideas that I write down, put away, don't, you know, just will come back to. But if it's going to be the project that I'm working on, something will happen where suddenly there's this idea that I'll become like obsessed with. And in a month, I'll usually have like 300 pages, um, but it'll be something no one else could read. It, it's, I write out of order. So, you know, I'll, I'll usually get maybe like the snapshot of the story. Um, and then the scenes just kind of start coming to me. So I'll get this scene from the end of the book and the scene from the beginning and I'll, I'll have all these scenes and what takes me so long is just putting it in order. So that's where I have to start going in after like a month or so of, you know, I'll usually get this sort of flood, this surge of scenes for maybe a month or two, and then I'll feel it kind of like tapering off. And that's when I go and get the outline, get the scenes in order, edit everything, polish everything. And it, and it kind of feels like, you know, when I I've watch different interviews with directors and they'll film, you know, 30 hours of footage and they're like, I hope a movie is in there somewhere. And it just comes down to the editing. Um, so it's, it feels kind of like that for me. I'm always interested in hearing how other writers put their stories together. What can you tell us about your new novel, Dark Room Etiquette? Um, so yeah, my new novel is a young adult thriller and it's, is about the abduction of a 16-year-old boy named Sayers Waite. Um, and I have the book here, and I was just going to kind of read the inside flap. Um, Wonderful idea. Okay. So it's um, 16-year-old Sayers Waite has everything. Popularity, good looks, perfect grades. There's nothing Sayers family money can't buy. Until he's kidnapped by a man who tells him the privileged life he's been living is based on a lie. Trapped in a windowless room without knowing why he's been taken or how long the plan... The man plans to keep him shut away. Sayers faces a terrifying new reality. To survive, he must forget the world he once knew and play the part his abductor has created for him. But as time passes, the line between fact and fiction starts to blur, and Sayers begins to wonder if he can escape before he loses himself. What would you like to tell us about this novel? Do you know where your idea came from? I've always been drawn to thrillers and psychological thrillers, and I grew up reading um a lot of horror too and you know Stephen King books like Misery um so it, it's definitely a, a genre that I'm I'm pulled to um and then the idea of an abduction story has always kind of played in my mind if you I feel like as children it's one of those things that we're constantly warned about you know be careful you know because you could get abducted and so it was definitely a fear of mine that has been in my head since I was very young um, and so I think that's, you know, part of, you know, the origin of it. And I also, um, years ago, I wrote a version of this book that I, I don't, I barely saved any of it, like many years ago, maybe over 10 years ago. Um, and at the outset, it was just a much different story in terms of like, I guess the motivation of the characters, um, a much darker story. Um, so darker it is, than uh, this? yes. Oh gosh. Yes. If you can get darker. <laughs> yeah. Because I, you know, I was reading 
I think I was just more pulled to horror and, you know, kind of, I guess, books like uh, Stephen King books where they have a lot of on-screen, on-page on violence. And I just, as a reader and as a writer, I'm not, I'm not drawn to that the way that I once was. So it's just become a different kind of book and maybe just a lot more sensitive than it would have been 10 years ago. Yeah, I think I'm probably more disturbed by psychological yeah. <laughs> violence as opposed to physical violence. Yeah, I understand that. Yeah, especially like the concept of not being able to trust your own uh, mind and your own thoughts. Yeah, and I think that's something that I that, that I have struggled with is is feeling that way. And um and I'm sure a lot of us have, you know, struggled with, you know, can we trust our own thoughts? Can we even trust ourselves? And so a lot of kind of my personal experiences have were sort of seeded into the book too. I definitely have um, a huge fear of being kidnapped, of being trapped in any kind of situation mm -hmm. where I don't have like a clear and cut exit strategy. So I know for me, reading this brought back a lot of memories of growing up of like stranger danger and yeah. find a police officer, find a teacher, find a pastor or a preacher. Or... Yeah. And I can see, and as a child, that would just be such a frightening thing. So yeah, I mean, as an adult, it's frightening, <laughs> you know, like I'm 32 and traveling alone. I still like, you know, bring pepper spray and make sure I'm aware of my surroundings and oh, yeah. observant as possible. Yeah. I mean, as women, I feel like that's a fear that never really goes away. You know, my husband and I have talked about that before, too. I remember, uh, slightly off topic, <laughs> I remember my husband and I had to go on a road trip during COVID, and a lot of places, their public restrooms were closed. And one of the ones we went to, they had turned their women's restroom into a service all restroom, and it had one lock on it. Oh, and so he went into the women's restroom, used it and came back out. And he said, you're never going to believe this. I just saw a weird poster on the back of the door of the stall. And I said, I know exactly what poster you're talking about. They're in every woman's bathroom, but they're not in men's bathroom. And it's, it's a poster about uh, domestic violence, human trafficking and phone numbers yeah. and hotlines you can call for help. Um, and I said, uh, I said, that's not new. That's something that's in most women's bathrooms, especially in public places. Yeah, it, it is so strange, the kind of second nature feeling of it almost like, mm -hmm. you know, if it's late at night, I need to check the mailbox. It's just like a residential neighborhood, but I still will want somebody to watch me like walk to the mailbox, you know, just even though, it, you know, it's just that anxiety has never really left me, I, I think, in a sense. Um since childhood. And it was a really big fear when I was very young. Um, I just was like, a, just very, a very frightened kid. And I did see a therapist when I was seven. And I don't think he really had ever worked with children. He had like this briefcase of Legos. And <laughs> he was giving me like murder statistics. He's like, you know, it's so unlikely. And <laughs> It just did not help, obviously. I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. You mean there's a chance I could be murdered? Because my parents have said there's no chance. But right, you're saying right. there is a chance. And and I was like, I knew they were lying to me. I knew there was a chance I could be killed. And I was just so afraid of being murdered or kidnapped or, or something um, when I was little. And it's it, it would have probably shocked my parents then to, for them to have seen me go on to like almost just – 
become, you know, really drawn to reading scary books and horror novels and thrillers. And I don't know if it's something like we, we do to combat the fear in a sense, you know, because it feels so safe and controlled within the walls of a book. I think that's very well said. I know that not to show my age, but <laughs> I, I know that when I was growing up was during the time that John Bonet Ramsey was oh, yeah. kidnapped and Stark Girl. I'm drawing a blank on her name right now, but um, there were quite a few famous cases of children who went missing, including yeah. Adam, which is the the child that was abducted who started the milk carton concept. Oh, right. Okay. And Amber, who started the concept of an Amber Alert. All mm. of those things took place during my childhood. Yeah. And my, my parents had four daughters. So mm. I think they always had like a fear themselves of our safety. And so that sort of translated onto us as children. Yeah, right. Like, I feel like that was such a, I, I think they, in the 1980s, had the highest child abduction rate. Of, of any time. And, you know, so from that time on, I feel like, yeah, we've been so teaching our kids to be careful. And so that fear is definitely embedded, you know? Yeah. And I'm not sure how many of my listeners are, are old enough to remember that time or, or how, how, if you're even old enough to remember the 1990s, but uh, it was definitely a time when that was a huge fear. Like I remember having assemblies about stranger danger. Yeah. I remember having assemblies about how to know, you know, which adults to trust and which adults you can't trust, what phone numbers to call, what public buildings you should go to. Like, you know, if you're at a Walmart and you can't find your parents, you go to the front desk, you don't look for your parent yourself. Right. Yeah. Um, I remember learning all of those things as a, as a kid. And I think, it, I think, because I learned all of them as a child throughout my childhood, it sort of just became just assumed that everybody knew these things. Yeah. And it also almost felt inevitable that it was going to happen. Yes. Yeah. It's like, well, eventually, you know, I'm just waiting for that day, you know, but I think what's kind of interesting though, about Sayers weight, the, the main character in darker medicate is that he doesn't have that fear. You know, mm -hmm. he, he almost just feels as if he's immune to something like that or immune to any problems, really. Like he has grown up with such privilege that he just problems aren't on his radar. And, mm -hmm. um, and then also just being a boy, the sort of feelings that he has, you know, once he's abducted and I don't want to, you know, give, give any spoilers, but just the kind of a different sort of reaction that a boy may feel versus a, a woman or a girl there's a kind of different level of shame when a boy or a guy is a victim of a crime because there's this feeling that as a guy, they should have been able to stop it. And so it's just kind of a, some, you know, there's a lot of overlap for, between men and women, obviously boys and girls who go through something like this, but there's some differences too that I just kind of was able to go into with, with this character. Having those fears and anxieties yourself, was it, difficult to write those scenes or did you feel like you could really tap into that fear and translate it to the page? Yeah. So for me, it was very cathartic because I feel like I'm able to sort through any problem I have through, uh, through a book. It's not that um, conscious, you know, I'm not ever starting a book thinking, well, there's this problem that I need to fix 
And so I'm going to put it into a book, but I have noticed that that's just kind of how it works. Um, like, you know, any past traumas or fears or, or, or sometimes like, you know, we circle back to those same traumas that we have either in childhood or adolescence or, you know, the things that we think we're over, but we're not really over. And, you know, we just kind of keep coming back to them. I'll notice that they'll go into whatever book I'm working on. And so it actually is just really therapeutic because I'm able to use what I've used, what I've experienced or use what I'm feeling, put it into the book and work through it. So it's, it feels like a, yeah, it's just like a healthy thing for me. It's a nice uh, coping mechanism, a way to work through your, your fears and anxieties. Yeah. I mean, I think when we think of like art therapy or um, journaling or all these kind of forms of art that are really therapeutic, music, dance, you know, we can really put all of our problems into our art, you know, whatever kind of art it is that you do. And I feel like everybody does something, you know, even and a lot of people don't think of it as art, like, you know, maybe people who garden or, or even just being a consumer of it, you know, listening to music, reading books, like, you know, that's being a participant in art. But I feel like most people are creating some kind of art, even if they don't call it that. And I just think it's just such a great way to work through whatever it is we're dealing with. I know it's also something that, at least in my experience, that is recommended. I have um, been having... Father's Day is just around the corner. And what better way to show your appreciation than with a cozy and luxurious Minky Couture blanket from our collection. Made with the softest and highest quality materials, our blankets are the perfect gift for the dads who deserve to relax and unwind in style. Whether he's watching the game, reading a book, or simply taking a nap, our blankets will provide the ultimate comfort and warmth. Give the gift of luxury this Father's Day with a Minky Couture blanket. Visit our website at minkycouture.com or head to your nearest store to experience the unmatched comfort and quality of our blankets. Happy Father's Day! Some severe mental problems and I ended up having to go mm. to um, a grief counselor after the loss of my father. And oh, oh, that was one of the recommendations was, well, you like to write write about it. Yeah. Write a song, write a poem, write a scene, remember exactly what happened and write it down, journal what you're feeling today. You know, when you're missing him, journal about it. When you have a memory that comes up to you, write it down. Um, and I know it has helped uh, quite a bit going through something like that because also like uh, my father wasn't sick. He was very healthy. And so the, the death was extremely unexpected and mm. none of us were really prepared for it. And I think yeah. it's hard to be prepared for anything like that. And so, yeah, I mean, going to a grief counselor, I, I almost felt like it was necessary within, within a few days of what happened. I realized like, I can't do this by myself. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm so sorry that you've gone Thank you. like when was it, and you said this was pretty recent. Um, February. Gosh, I'm so sorry. Thank you. Yeah. And I think that that's something that a lot of like, you know, books and TVs and movies, I think that's something a lot of them don't go into. The book ends with somebody getting rescued and that's the end of the story. Yeah. And I think in, in researching, you would, you might find that that's not the case, that being rescued isn't the end of the story. Is that something you came across during your research process? Were you able to come up with an ending that you felt served the story well? Yeah. So, so for me, I always, 
felt that way. I always felt like the movie ended too soon or the book ended too soon. And I was always so interested in, in what happens after. And so, you know, in part it's, you know, I was able to draw from, you know, my, my just years of research just in, in school, but then also drawing from my own background. Like I personally experienced like, you know, trauma and I've raised children who, who went through trauma actually just wrote an essay for the school library journal and you kind of could write about anything. And that's sort of what I was talking about is, you know, using art to heal. And in particular, one of the topics that I went into was grief and, um, and just that it's not something that has this quick end date. You know, I think we tend to expect people to recover from trauma or grief or different things so quickly. And we don't really see the, the grief process in a lot of TV, film, books. Sometimes we do. Sometimes we see it done really well. And I always really respond to things like that. Yeah, and in the essay that I had written, so basically I started raising my nephews when I was 18. And one of the boys died before before we got the other boys. And the oldest boy was in kindergarten and just like really struggling. And I was 17 at that time. And obviously I was just really grieving too um, for this child. And I remember this switch kind of flipped when I was like, I'm going to make a book for the oldest boy. And so I just started watercoloring and drawing and writing the story. And I put it together into this children's book. And, um, and I used to, you know, whenever I was tucking the oldest boy in, you know, I'd read him these different children's books. But after I made this one, I was like, do you want me to read this to you? And he, he just wanted me to read it every night for, for a long time. And years later, he, he told me how much it helped him process that. So it was like creating the book was so healing, but then sharing it with him was, you know, healing for me and for him. And it was this book about his brother and him. And so when this happened, when my nephew died, um, a lot of, I felt a lot of guilt around the situation. He was in a situation that I felt like I should have gotten him out of sooner. And so that has stayed with me for all of these years. But I feel like only just now in the last few years, getting to the other side of that and feeling a sense of peace about him and about everything that happened and just being able to write about like kind of the long-term effects of, of trauma and recovery is really something as a writer that I'm really drawn to. So, you know, Dark Room Etiquette, I think, is like this fast-paced thriller and a lot of bloggers are saying they're reading it like in a day, but at the same time, like it's emotional. So, you know, just because I'm putting a lot of my myself into it, you know. I can't speak for everyone, but I definitely didn't read it in a day. It's very interesting and it was very hard for me to take a step back, but there were multiple scenes where I felt uh, slightly overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. I was actually telling a friend of mine the other day, I said, I had to stop a lot and get like a hug and cool. like a cup of tea oh, and gosh. like, <laughs> because it can be a little overwhelming. Yeah. Um, I actually haven't had this much uh, like secondhand fear from a book since reading the selection series oh. uh, by Kiara Cass. And I read that two or three years ago. Mm. And I, I remember like one day at one point reading, my husband came into the room and I was just like bawling my eyes out. 
And I was like holding on to the dog. Like I wouldn't let the dog go away. Oh. He, was, he took the book and he was like, I think we're going to take a break. Like I'm going I'm to make you some tea. We're going to watch like some friends. We're going to calm down. Um, and it was really kind of cathartic going back and forth because mm. I feel like at least, at least for me, from my personal experience reading it, I feel like I had a lot of time to sit with the, the scenes that I was absorbing, with the emotions that I was absorbing, with the experience like the characters were having that I was absorbing. And I felt like I had a lot of time to sort of contemplate what their uh, experience was already happening up until that point instead of you know worrying about predicting what was going to happen next. Um, and maybe that's just because I don't read a lot of thrillers. Mm-hmm. So this might be just how I've survived that experience. It's so interesting to hear, you know, how readers are processing it because, you know, everybody processes it differently. Um, but I also like the idea of somebody really taking their time with the scenes and with the characters and, you know, letting it sink in. So, um, yeah, so that's really interesting, too. I will say that I tend to absorb books both by page and by ear. And I know I have a lot of listeners who also enjoy audiobooks. Do you know if the book will be put into audiobook format anytime? Yeah, it's it's um, available now for audiobook pre-order. So, I mean, it, it's out on October 11th, so today. Um, and um, yeah, you can purchase it for pre-order right now. That's wonderful. Or not for pre-order. You can purchase it on as an audiobook right now. That's wonderful. Yeah. So let's talk about some of your research for this book. I know you drew on your own experiences and education. Was there any more research you needed in terms of maybe character development or, or plot or even just, you know, some of the structures and logistics? There really wasn't too much more research I needed to do. So um, it was something that, you know, I was, it's so second nature at this point because, um, you know, like I said, my background is in this in terms of education and then also in practice of like years of working with teenagers in a therapeutic setting and then also years of raising children and then my own background. But after I completed it, I did go back and verify. I was like, okay, does this matching the data that we have on these various traumas, disorders, and and it was all lining up. So I was like feeling really good about that. And then another kind of interesting thing is for PTSD. And so for anybody who has PTSD, especially if it's, um, so so there's kind of the different types of PTSD, like a single trauma versus a a long-term situation, like perhaps like growing up in an abusive home. So that type of PTSD looks a lot like an abduction. Being in an abusive home looks a lot like captivity. So that kind of PTSD, I was able to really draw from, you know, my own experiences. And it was really helpful to be able to seed that into the book, too. I think that's very interesting to sort of try to include logistics and also your own experience and expertise. Is there anything you hope readers will gain from the experience or maybe take away from the experience after they finish their reading? Yeah. So I think, um, so first and foremost, like I always just want a reader to be entertained. Like that's always the first thing I want is, um, because, you know, there'll be times when you're drafting a book that you feel this pressure of, of what kind of book this needs to be. And so first and foremost, I'm like, you know, 
is it like an entertaining thriller? And so that, that was number one for me. But beyond that, I think the kind of two big ones are that we all have the capacity for growth and change. You know, Sayers at the outset is this pretty oblivious person. He's not really aware of how other people feel. He's, you know, pretty insensitive to how other people are feeling. Um, You know, he has this really huge transformation as the book goes on. So I think being able to see that, you know, we're all flawed, we all make mistakes, but that we all have the potential to be whatever we want to be, I think is is one of the big ones that would be a takeaway. And I think that hopefully readers will also take away that there is hope at the end of the mm-hmm. tunnel and that there are people and resources you can go to. And I will include in the show notes several resources for mental health and safety hotlines. Okay. Many of my listeners are uh, aspiring writers. What advice do you have to share with them? Yeah, so um, kind of like I was mentioning earlier, I've always written, never shared my work. And I think in some ways that was really good for me because there was no pressure. I mean, I felt like I had this ability to just experiment with writing for years without anyone on the outside telling me anything. Um, Because I feel like for young writers, sometimes they're showing their new fledgling work and they're often showing it to somebody older or more experienced. um, And they're hearing a lot of criticisms. Um, And I don't know that that's helpful if you're, especially if you're a young writer, like if you're in your teens or even early twenties, I'm like, I just don't think that's helpful. I think being completely free to just write without any inhibition to explore you're teaching yourself as you write. Like I will add, a caveat here depends on the writer. Now, sometimes you have a 16 year old who's so advanced that they're ready for that. They're ready for that like hard, hard line critique of let's go through this piece that you've written and make it better. So if, if you're that kind of writer, then I, I totally support that. But I just think for in general, it was so beneficial to me to just write without any censorship for a long time. So yeah, I guess like my first piece of advice, at least based on what worked for me is to just write and don't worry about what anybody else might think of it. Um, write as if no one else will read it, you know, be as honest as you would be in a diary or a journal. Um, because weirdly enough, like the more specific you are, the more universal it is. It's, it's sometimes you think, oh, this very weird specific thing is just me. And it's just, it's almost always going to pull in more people when you go more specific and you're more honest. And then I would say, just feel, you know, allow yourself to feel whatever you're writing. I would say, love your characters, because if you really love them, then when they're hurting at any point in the story, because in every story, there's going to be, you know, some time where your character's hurting that love that you feel for them is going to make that emotion so much deeper. And when they're having a good moment, that emotion is going to be so much deeper because you love them. And then probably another thing I would say that's so important for me is to have silence in in your life, like, like meditate, go for walks, do something away from the internet and away from other people if possible. Um, just to allow space for your characters to show up. Because if I don't, if I don't do that, I'm not going to be able to write. Like I'm, I'm hearing something 
my son said, or I'm hearing something, I'm, I'm worrying about something I just saw on TV or, or something I just saw on social media and there's just no space for the story. Um, so those are kind of my main, my main things that, that helped me. I would say on the same note, uh, trying to include all that silence in your life, how do you fill the creative well when you're feeling like you're dealing with imposter syndrome or writer's block or you just can't seem to get past a certain scene or obstacle? Yeah, I mean, that's such a, that's a good question. I think, tell, you know, be, be, be kind to yourself. Like that's the, the big one. I think when we're looking at our story, first of all, it can, it can be very easy to get bored if you're looking at the same book or story or whatever it is you're working on. If you're looking at it every day for weeks or months on end, it's normal to feel bored. Um, and, and just imagine if it was like I'm watching the same TV show every single day or the same episode of the same show every day. I'm going to get bored of it, even if I loved it at the beginning. So I would say allow yourself a little space away from it if you need to. Um, and, and go do something stimulating that's outside of the project. Like even if it's switching to a new project for a week and you come back to it or you go – for a walk, you go see friends, you listen to music, you see a piece of art that inspires you, you go to a movie, try to get a change of scenery. Oh, and walking. It seems so silly, but just the calf muscles, when they're activated, they're sending blood flow to the brain. It's so vital. Like just move. You may be really surprised if you can just walk away from it and like literally start walking. Einstein was known for his long walks and the ideas that would come to him on these walks. So, you know, allow your brain to have some, some kind of stimulation outside of the piece that you're working on and trust that it will come back. Don't be afraid if you need a little space, because the thing is like, we often say, why is it not flowing? It was just going so well. And it's really was going well. And that's why you're needing a break because you're drained, you know? And so it's just like if for these spiritual batteries, we have to recharge. And, you know, I would just say, and don't be afraid. Don't be afraid if, if you get stuck on a project or if it's not working for a few days, it's, go, it's going to come back. Very well said. I know for me, talking with other writers and critique partners always motivates me to get back to it. Yeah, that's so true. I think talking to other writers is amazing because there's this, it's like the energy of creativity. I mean, it's like impossible to not feel that. And then I think too, like the talking it out, like the person I, my go-to person is my son and he writes too. So it's always makes it exciting. And if I'm stuck, even if he doesn't have an answer, like you said, just talking about it, it's somehow my, you know, my brain is working it out just by talking about it. And Sometimes it won't even resolve itself within the conversation, but we'll be like, oh, okay, I, I don't know right now, but you know, that's all, that's all I know for now. And then you'll five minutes later, I'll be like, oh my gosh, that's it. You know, and you run to the laptop and start writing and, um, and that, that has happened so many times where I'm having a conversation where I'm like, oh, nothing's really coming from this. I'm just sort of spewing how it's not working. And then somehow just the act of talking it out, kind of like you said, it just, it just breathes something. I see nothing wrong with talking out loud. Like I, 
I'm very big on affirmations and mantras too. And sometimes, you know, it may seem silly to other people, but I'll just say this book is already, already written. It's already exactly what I want it to be. I'm just sort of like filling in the gap. It's almost like taking a Polaroid picture and you're just like waiting for it to develop. And I'm like, no, it's done. I'm just waiting for it to fully develop. And it's been really helpful for me to do that. It's like, you know, my subconscious mind is trying to fill in that space. What is next for you to fill in that space? What projects can people expect from you in the future? Yeah, so I am working on a few different things. And I don't know what's going to be the next one published. I have a wide trilogy that I'm working on. So my first book, A List of Cages, I have been working on a sequel to that. And so I'm kind of going back and forth between that and this trilogy. And it's sort of a matter of like, just what do I get? What am I going to get done first? And then I have a bunch of other things that are in various stages of completion. A list of cages came out a while ago and is widely available. Do you want to tell listeners what it's about? A list of cages is about two foster brothers who've gotten separated. The oldest boy, Adam, it's actually his mom was a foster mom. And Adam is just like sunshine in human form, this very sweet 17-year-old who's just kind of everyone's favorite. And he is working as an aide to the school psychologist. And the school psychologist says, ask him to track down this troubled freshman who's been dodging their sessions. And it turns out this boy is Julian, who had lived in his home as a foster child five years earlier. And Julian is very shy, very timid, um, and also extremely sweet. Like, you know, they're both extremely sweet characters. And, um, but Adam starts to slowly realize that something is going on in Julian's house. And it's something that could put, you know, both of both Adam and Julian in danger. It definitely has suspense. It's definitely very emotional. That's one of the books where I've had so many people, bloggers or different readers message me and said, oh, I shouldn't have read this in public because I'm crying in public. And so it's emotional, but it's also very hopeful and just following two very, very sweet characters. Definitely hopeful and uplifting. And it's all about the power of kindness and the power that one person has to help someone. Did you have anything else you wanted to share with the listeners? Yeah, I just said I'm really excited that Darker Medicate is out and I um, love to hear from readers and bloggers and I'm on Instagram at Robin Rowe Rider and um, that's also my website name RobinRowRider.com and yeah I just really enjoy hearing from from readers so people can feel free to reach out. Thank you. Listeners you can find links for Robin and her novels in the show notes for this episode as well as information about domestic violence, safety hotlines, and resources for mental health. Thank you so much for being here and thank you for reaching out to me in the podcast. Yeah thank you for having me this is a really great talk. Readers, you can check out Darkroom Etiquette now. It is available everywhere. Keep reading, keep listening, and thank you for being here. Bye. This podcast is hosted and produced by Bethany Finger, and today's special guest was Robin Rowe, author of Dark Room Etiquette. The intro-outro music was composed by Emma Pablo, and the logo art was created by Sunlit Tangles on Instagram. Thank you for listening.
When we got Verizon 5G home internet, it sounded like it could handle all our needs. But one thing it couldn't handle was our frustration. And hey, we deserve reliable internet. It's time for better internet. Fast, reliable internet. Switch to Xfinity. Learn more at Xfinity.com slash Verizon 5G facts.